It's Distazapod, and as we get ever so closer to spring, we have a lot going on. We're going to talk about Galator and its 12th year anniversary, if you can imagine that. We're going to promote some friends of mine who have some interesting things going on you need to know about, and we're going to tackle questions and answers. It's Distazapod. Let's go. Life before Knights of the Slice before Toy Pizza. What did that look like? Well, it looked a lot like Galator. Galator was, uh, in many ways, the first complete story, the first project I actually crossed the finish line on creatively. Uh, I had long struggled to be able to execute any idea I had. Uh, You know, I, I would have a lot of false starts. I would have these grand ambitions and plans. I would make a little progress and then, of course, lose steam and sort of have a downward spiral, uh, doubting my creativity. And I'm sure that's a pretty familiar feeling for a lot of the listeners and and people that sort of uh, try to be a creative person. But Galator, I actually finished and self-published. I was able to do that because I was making enough money in the film licensing world that I could afford someone as a helper, uh, Jer Pollen, who did a lot of the artwork and helped stitch together this. And we worked together on a daily basis. He would come over and we would sort of tackle this. And uh, the truth is I was only able to do that because I was sort of making money somewhere else and making, having enough sort of excess cash that I could throw it into this project. Galator is the tale of an earthling, uh, a lowly waiter, who is sucked away to far reaches of the galaxy and competes in gladiatorial-style games uh, and actually manages to get quite far in them. So um, this was a story that I finished, I self-published, and promptly sold probably about five copies of, as, as was the case with anything else I had done, and would continue to be the trend for many years up until the very recent history. Um, You know, you will struggle to find an audience for these things. Um, That's just kind of the nature of the beast. I do think it's a little easier today because we have things like Patreon, we have Instagram. Uh, Those did not exist back in this time frame. Also, we do have the Night of the Slice community and specifically the Discord channel, which I think is great for people promoting uh, their projects, and I think that that is kind of an instant viewership. You know, you will at least get a handful of people that will check your stuff out, whereas it might get lost in the noise of Instagram or other places. But I digress. Um, Galator is an important piece of the sort of early foundation of my comic and storytelling process. I, I kind of figured out how to do it with writing a skeleton and then slowly fleshing that out, having a finite beginning and end, all these kind of uh, structural things I never thought about prior to this work uh, and things that honestly kept me from completing anything in, you know, in any of my other endeavors. And I have been wanting to do a sort of nod to Galator within the main Night of the Slice toy line. Uh, I like how this has manifested itself in the current assortment. I think it's, uh, it, 
it kind of came together in a, in a flash, uh, very last minute, but it, it fits and it works. And we have some beautiful artwork from the Nobby Wood who worked, uh, you know, with very little notice overnight to uh, turn out some fantastic art. And I think it all ties together nice in a collection. In case you missed it, for anybody that bought a figure from the Galator collection, uh, you do get a digital download with it. And that includes some behind the scenes artwork and also this pitch deck that I put together and I was sort of circulating as I was out, um, you know, traveling for licensing business. I would make friends and I would sort of show them what I was working on. Uh, I also, I think I showed a couple different comic companies this pitch as well. Um, I remember talking to Dark Horse uh, and much like today, it was a pass for everybody. So still have not figured out that portion of the business. There's probably only one or two listeners that actually remember Galator or that were in this uh, collective prior to Nice of the Slice or Toy Pizza. Uh, so I do salute those kings. Uh, you were there first. Absolutely. Um, what's next for Galator? I, I don't know. I don't know how interested I am in sort of further exploring that world. But it is nice to kind of go back and visit. It is crazy to think it's been 12 years since it was published, which means probably closer to 14 years since its inception. Uh, and it's not my most perfect piece of work. I mean, I don't think that you could call any of my work perfect, but it is part of it and it is interesting. And I think largely a lot of the art still holds up. It's interesting to me. So I'm relatively proud of it. Um, I don't know if I'm ever going to republish it in physical copies, although I did discover, as I mentioned, an Amazon print-on-demand service. I, I'm guessing I was the person that uploaded this book for that. I do not remember doing it. I can't seem to access it, but it does exist out there. I know a couple people have ordered, so it'll be interesting to see what actually arrives from that. Um, and hey, maybe if it's good quality, I'll consider putting up other Night of the Slice titles into that marketplace. We'll see. In any case, I hope you check out Galator. Uh, I think it's interesting. It, it is sort of a prototype of what would become the universe of Knights of the Slice. And I like to think that this is a pocket universe within that world. So uh, you can check out the digital copy on toypizza.com. Or if you want to risk that Amazon print on demand, you can go for it. Just look up the title Galator. And thank you guys for checking it out. It's, you know, it's always fun when these things get a little bit of a second life and get to kind of get rehashed and get some new eyeballs on them. So I appreciate it. A few friends of the pod have some interesting projects I want you guys to check out. Starting with, most importantly, our good friends at Plunderlings. Do you know why I like Plunderlings so much? Because Plunderlings are actually a patron of my project. How great is that? So many people will uh, pay you lip service in this industry, in any creative field. They will tell you your work is great. They love what you do, X, Y, and Z. Very few people will actually step up and become a Patreon member. And that's what Plunderlings did. So they are always going to be in my good graces. I love the Plunderlings team. I've had the luxury and the privilege of dining with these fine folks. They're all great. Good hearts. 
strong, strong muscles on these people. Uh, they have a Kickstarter for their new versions of the Plunderlings. Plunder Strong and the Plunder Long. They are introducing different body types, new styles of articulation. I was actually hands-on with these figures. They're fantastic. So I want everybody to go and boost this campaign. Let's make it go sky high. They really, really deserve it. I'm happy to see them back on Kickstarter. I know they're kicking ass. Um, couldn't happen to better people, a better team. Uh, head to toe. Love those guys. Please go. And if you're not in a position to back their Kickstarter campaign, just share the link. Help get the word out. Because I'm always harping on about the solution to this endless recycling of intellectual property from the 80s, the endless reboots of things like He-Man. The solution is supporting independent creations. Plunderlings is a great example of that. So send your money that way. Don't send your money to Mattel or Hasbro. Let's help boost these original ideas because they are sorely needed. It is a wasteland out there of just regurgitation. So this is the solution. You have your marching orders. Moving on, I got in the mail something more precious than treasure. Uh, I am a patron of Peter Chung. Peter Chung being the creator of Eon Flux and many other animated things. Uh, at his $100 tier level, which I am a member, he sends you animation cells from Eon Flux. And uh, I posted some photos on Patreon, on the Lens app. These are works of art. This is incredible. Like, such a, uh, you know, I I've spoken at length about Eon Flux and Peter Chung's work and its impact on me, how it's informed me as a creator, how it was a sort of call to action. Seeing that, you know, was largely an impetus for me going to school for animation and wanting to tell stories the same way Peter did it. Uh, the Patreon is fantastic. He's incredibly interactive with people, incredibly honest. Um, you just don't get that kind of candid take on a prolific artist's career. You, it's I've never experienced that before. So I would highly recommend you follow him. If you love animation cells, uh, this is like just... <laughs> I'm looking at it right now. It's I'm ensorcelled by it. It is magical. It really is. It's the only way I can describe it. So, consider supporting Peter Chung. He has, himself, some original ideas that he is trying to get out to the world. So again, let's use our money and let's support independent creative voices. This is another great example. You have Plunderlings, who are in the infancy of their career in many respects. And you have Peter Chung, who is an elder statesman of telling interesting creative stories with unique characters. So let's support both these ventures because it makes the world a better place, let's say. Okay, final friend I want to share with you guys, probably somebody you already know, Bobby Torres and this toy life. He is the only authorized reseller of Knights of the Slice in the continental United States or the known universe. Uh... This Toy Life is a wonderful brick-and-mortar store in Connecticut. If you are anywhere nearby, I highly recommend you take the pilgrimage out there. It's a pretty stellar collection he has. He's going to be on the app Whatnot, and uh, just look for This Toy Life on that app. It's a sort of live auction streaming service. 
It's very interesting. I could possibly make a debut on this app at some point in the future. Uh, Bobby's going to be selling some pretty amazing Night of the Slice archive pieces. So go and check it out. He's a very trustworthy guy, as long as you're not uh, being pummeled by a rock in the head like I was when we first met. So other than that, him trying to reenact Lord of the Flies, uh, very good guy, and you can trust him. So go check out that as well. You got three things you need to do a little research on. The Plunderlings on Kickstarter, Peter Chung's Patreon, and this toy life on Whatnot. Did I say WhatsApp? I meant Whatnot. Anyway, there's too many damn apps out there. Our first question from Brent Barnacle, I'm going to say is question of the week. Why the hell not? Uh, what makes a Frankenslice go from good to so great it sells out instantly? I've used, I used to be someone who's turned off by them for the longest time, but since the Star Ninja, something just clicked for me. Uh, so for those new to the process, a Frankenslice is a kit-bashed figure. It is a random mix of parts that create a new character, utilizing many different molds in the production process. And Frankenslices are always a bit more limited than regular general store releases, and there can be a sort of frenzy around them. Many people trying to uh, track down these figures, get the parts, um, yeah, things of that nature. So I will tell you what makes a Frankenslice really hot while others are not. And also this generally applies to anything I release on my store. And the universal truth behind all this is, I have no idea. And there is no way to know, and there is no accounting for taste. I have many times thought a figure I was putting in the store would be guaranteed sell out instantly. This is gonna be my highest selling figure ever, only for that to fall flat. Uh, and then there are times where I think nobody is going to want this. Uh, this is a ridiculous premise. Nobody's going to turn over their hard-earned cash for it, and there is a voracious appetite. In particular, this Star Ninja project, I really didn't think people were going to be that into it, because there are one or two new pieces, or newer pieces, uh, but largely these are figures, uh, you know, a good portion of our Patreon audience, at least, already have. And then sure enough, I didn't make enough Star Ninjas, and they went very, very quickly. So... The one thing that, you know, coming up on our seventh year selling Knights of the Slice, maybe even, well, I guess eight if you count all the pre-production and the Kickstarter. In any case, uh, the one truth I have discovered in all of this, in doing, you know, sometimes uh, three sales in a single month, is you just don't know. There is no rhyme or reason for people's taste. You don't know what the audience is going to respond to. Um... It, that's just how it is. I, I, I can't quite explain it. And I've been uh, pretty consistently wrong every time I thought for sure I had a strong idea about how something would perform. And so I stopped doing it quite a while ago. I just don't know. I don't know what's going to sell. I don't know what you guys are going to connect with. Uh, it's all a roll of the dice. Next up, Gary Arnold. Not a question, just a comment. Galator was before my introduction to Glios or Toy Pizza, so I am very intrigued. Thanks for the Amazon link. Grabbed a copy of Galator and Objects of Power. 
Thank you, Gary. I appreciate the support. Objects of Power is a, uh, by this point, pretty embarrassing photo collection of different action figures in a little softbound book. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I should dig it out and take a look at it, but it, it was just me sort of pre-Galator trying to figure out what the hell it is I'm doing. And I liked taking photos of action figures. Uh, I, I wanted to self-publish. So there's a little collection. I, I'm not sure how good it is, um, but I guess uh, the audience will decide. It's also kind of funny to think about uh, when I took all the photos for Objects of Power, I was shooting on a Canon and there was a lengthy process in sort of editing these photos and setting them up. And uh, I didn't even have the Canon that had the sort of active view screen. So I, I would have to sort of press play and be in a shaded area to look at the shots I had taken. It was really kind of blind firing. And now, uh, all these years later, everything is just shot on my cell phone. It's, you know, it's kind of dramatically different. Not to mention, I would say most of our hobby, and especially on Instagram, is just people taking photos of their action figures, right? Dramatic poses, dramatic lighting, in-action photos. Like, that is a whole cottage industry. There are accounts with tens of thousands of followers who just simply do that. And, uh, you know, it's funny to think a process that was so... Um, you know, it took so much time for me. I actually went, I traveled outside the city to go and set up these photos. I went camping and, you know, had this big, thoughtful, nuanced production behind it. And now today, you know, more than a decade later, it's like, oh, this is a complete commodity. Everybody can do this. And, you know, it's it's so ubiquitous. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty crazy to think about. Got a couple deep lore questions here. I'm going to hop over to the Discord for a question I missed last week. This is from Lane. Is the Proto Grey Verkill release meant to be Talon from Reforging Olympus, or is she TBD? Uh, good question. I have not revealed this, but it would be an interesting premise if the Trilobite Kingdom is trying to integrate themselves more and more into different cultures to grab more power for themselves. What better way to do it than to have a sleeper agent in law enforcement, in the Star Marshals? So, I think there's something interesting there, and I'll say no more. Hopping back to Patreon, still on that Reforging Olympus kick, which, by the way, if you haven't read it, it is a digital book with illustrations that is on toypizza.com. I believe it costs... Uh, let me look. $1.99. Had I said $1.99, it would have been correct. I looked it up. $2 gets you this beautiful, well-written, hopefully, piece of prose. You're going to love it, folks. Some fantastic stuff in there. Very crucial to where Nice of Slice is today. You can't really skip this, this piece. But anyway, I digress. Uh, and Charlie does mention there are spoilers in this question, so beware. This might already be answered somewhere, but I was rereading the Night of the Slice BLT arc graphic novel. On the part where Death Knight is introduced, we saw his face prior to being messed up. Is he the Alexander clone we got from the Action Figure of the Month variant figure? And if so, is that why Alexander is interested in him during Reforging Olympus? That would also mean Fred had access to Alexander's DNA before he left his temple, I believe. I like this. You're picking up all the breadcrumbs. Knights of the Slice is a fragmented narrative. There is detective work necessary to figure out... What is the backstory of these people, right? 
So you're doing a great job. You're on the trail. Um, you're missing one piece of narrative, though, and that is the postcard comic that went out with the Alexander Month of Action Figure of the Month Club. Now, the we're talking about two entities here, right? We have the person that became Death Knight, and we have Alexander the Great. And they are two separate entities, although one is derived from the other. Death Knight is derived from the DNA of Alexander the Great. It is mentioned in the postcard comic that uh, Alexander's DNA was extracted from a goblet or, or something along those lines. And likely, we can sort of conclude that was by Fred Foods for the purpose of growing and cultivating this clone of him who would become Death Knight. So, theoretically, Alexander the Great looks upon Death Knight, or uh, Hadith, as he is now known, as a son. And so that also means there's a grandson out in the ether. And that's the more interesting question. But as for the very specific classification of the figure that came in Action Figure of the Month Club, that is really up to the end user to decide. Is that Alexander? Is that Death Knight? Is that both of them? It can be whatever you want. It has parts for both of them. Uh, generally, although not always, I sort of annotate the difference between them as Alexander has gold hair and Death Knight had uh, yellow hair. Now, that's not always the case. It is sometimes interpreted differently in artwork and things like that. But generally, that's how, in my mind, I sort of uh, differentiate them. I see Alexander the Great as a kind of luminous, you know, almost ashen gold hair, and Death Knight having more traditional blonde hair, which in cartoons and animation is usually signified by a very saturated yellow. Next up, a question from Red. Do Send Silver and Send Copper have proper Send Unit model numbers like the previous iterations? They do. Send Copper is Send 3 and Send Silver is Send 4. Next up, we're entering the Tomimoto zone with Lance Tomimoto's question. What is your go-to wedding song? Um, well, having not had the, uh, the privilege of being married yet, uh, I'm just going to have to pick what I like hearing at other people's weddings. Um, you know, I will do the electric slide. I will go to the dance floor for that. I'm not very good at it, but I will do it. Uh, I guess uh, Gold Digger, Kanye West. I'm going to go with that. I just really like seeing all the grandmas in the crowd say the N-word to the song. Next up, Mac Connolly. If a Knight of the Slice figure comes with a rope, is it also considered a Knots of the Slice figure? Sure, I think so. K-N-O-T-S. Following that, we have Thomas Bucci. Oftentimes, we see an unpainted material style debut in the store, and then a painted version of that figure eventually falls, and we go, ah, so that's what that became. With that said, is Molten Hackerman, clear orange, a hint for an upcoming Ice Rat Colors Hackerman? Is Trilo Blue Stealth Star Marshal, clear blue, a hint for an upcoming Galaxy Rangers homage Star Marshal? Uh, no. No in both cases. I just sometimes run material styles as they are. Sometimes I just like the color of something, and it does not necessarily portend 
a fully painted version of that figure. And, uh, you know, I think that's one of the unexpected things about Knights of the Slice. You never really know. You never really can predict what's next. Hopping over to Facebook for a quick question from Sam Sherry. What are the legendary characters you're planning to make in the future, like Lei Sung Wukong, Achilles, Gilgamesh, etc.? Uh, so he's obviously referring to Alexander the Great being uh, resurrected, as it were, and part of the Knights of the Slice story. Um, some have also mentioned that perhaps General Beowulf is the Beowulf of legend. Yet to be confirmed, of course. So, could there be other legendary characters that make an appearance? Uh, I think so. Uh, are those going to be apparent ones that we uh, could sort of predict? I don't think so. I think I'm going to go in a different direction. So, it might be some of the more obscure characters of different mythologies across the world. The world. Uh, ones that have not necessarily gotten a spotlight in popular media. So we will have to wait and see. Back over to the Patreon for a question from Thomas Bucci. Oftentimes we see an unpainted material style debut in the store and then a painted version of that figure eventually follows and we go, ah, so that's what that became. With that said, is Molten Hackerman, clear orange, a hint for an upcoming Ice Rat Colors Hackerman? Is Trilo Blue Stealth Star Marshal in clear blue, a hint for an upcoming Galaxy Ranger Homage Star Marshal? Um, no, there, there is not a one-to-one -one rule in terms of unpainted material styles to eventual full-painted releases. What's important to sort of remember about material styles is that they do not sell as well as painted styles, right? I know the question has come up before, why not just make a material style of every figure you do? Well, they have less utility for me in my store. Um, the vast majority of our audience just want to pick up one to two figures. They want to spend between $30 and $50 on the store, and they tend to buy fully painted figures, complete packages. They're not buying accessories. They're not buying the clothing items. They're not buying head packs. That is what the majority of the audience sort of goes for. So to run any material styles, it is A, taking up a production slot for me, and B, taking up uh, my cash flow, my money. So they have to have a very distinct purpose in order for me to order them. They have to be able to fulfill a lot of different things. With that being said, I'm also a guy that likes a lot of variety, and I like to have uh, a lot of different colors of a lot of different plastic. And I like to test out new colors and new styles and things like that. So occasionally, or more often than not, I'll just order an unpainted style just because I, I like that hue and I think it could be interesting. And that's where we get something like the uh, clear blue, the clear trilo blue. That's where we get things like the Molten Hacker Man. Uh, so it's not a one-to-one -one thing. A specific color in the store does not mean that there is a fully painted version of that figure coming later on. Uh, you know, it is, it can be completely a spurious decision. Next up, we got a great question from Gabe Tovar. I'm sure you get asked this all the time. If you had a chance to make an animated show for Knights of the Slice, what style and look would you go with? 
I always imagine the world of Knights of Slice to be heavily stylized like something in the likes of Spider-Verse, especially how different in both shape and form the characters are. Um, if we're just sort of doing Mind Palace stuff and we're dreaming big here, uh, it's got to be Peter Chung, right? That is the person who would be the ideal art director and, uh, you know, director of the entire project. Uh, why I think I gravitate towards Peter's work, and in particular seeing it in person with these animated cells that I've received, um, he has sort of taken an art history approach to his work. Whether or not he would sort of view it that way uh, remains to be seen, but he is essentially taking all these classic artists and condensing them into an animated form. And... You know, I think of his work as kind of like a mixture of Egon Schiele and Lempicka and, you know, a lot of different sort of styles and influences from actual sort of, uh, I guess not really modern art, but, uh, you know, the classics, you know, painters and illustrators and things like that. And he took that and sort of synthesized that into his style. As I'm saying this, I'm sort of thinking about a couple things uh, that have come up in Peter's podcast and things like that. Because he did sort of start out at Disney, right? Uh, in the very early days, working alongside Tim Burton and uh, uh, Harry Salick and a bunch of other super creative people. Um, Disney had a aborted project with Salvador Dali uh, that is really fascinating. I think it's called Destinos. And you can see a little clip of that online. It's pretty fascinating. And so I, I, I'm sure this predates Peter's involvement at Disney, but they were essentially trying to take a classic artist and animate that and synthesize that and, and turn it into something else. Uh, Peter has also stated that there was a aborted Moebius project at Disney. And Moebius obviously did a lot of concept work for them. I think he worked on Tron and... A bunch of other stuff and and there were plans to adapt his work into a full-length feature film that never went anywhere and Peter said he was um, you know sort of working very closely with uh, Jean Girard on uh, adapting that in character designs and, and things of that nature so I wonder if that that process of taking somebody outside of animation a, an iconic artist and adapting it and transmuting it into the work is what led Peter to sort of pull from his influences and create his style, which I think looks unlike anything else. Another example, the end product is not very good, but you can look up Phantom 2040, and this was a adaptation of the King feature Phantom, famously played by Billy Zane in a live action movie. Uh, Peter did the character designs on that, and, uh, it looks really great. Like, it's very angular and almost skeletal, and it has a really great sort of look and feel to it. So, you know, if we're just imagining things here and there's an unlimited budget, uh, that is absolutely the path that I would want to go down. When it comes to the aesthetics and the style of the Spider-Verse and present-day animation, uh, I think these are all fine choices, but... The problem is this is all going to look very, very dated in 10 years. And 
there is a rule in animation that is kind of important to follow and that I always follow as well. And I picked this up when I went to a Pixar seminar. And they had all the great writers and character artists from Pixar give these long talks and really have an in-depth sort of dive into what is their formulas, like what are the best practices. It was very eye-opening for me. And one of the things they said was that they avoid topicality. They avoid making jokes about present-day stuff, and they avoid styles that are too trend-based, that are too, like, of the moment. Um, They give the example of, like, you know, a Macarena joke in a Shrek movie. Like, eventually, that Macarena joke is not going to make any sense whatsoever. They, They showed this slideshow of all these old black and white cartoons where they had, like, um, uh, flags hanging on a house, and it was a joke about, like, uh, bombing and bomb shelters and things that people were going through during World War II, but that iconography didn't make any sense to us as an audience, and it seemed like this anachronistic sort of thing. So it is kind of important to avoid being too modern when you're interpreting things. So I I think actually going too heavy into the aesthetics of the Spider-Verse or things like that, um, that might be a fine choice for this moment, but it will become very antiquated looking uh, very soon. Another example of this is the early Instagram filters, right? Like everybody that was on the platform when it exploded was filtering the shit out of their photos. And now when you see one of those photos, you know exactly the time period that's from. Oh, that was from 10 years ago. That was around, you know, 2012. I know exactly the name of that filter. I know, you know, its location on the early Instagram app. And we have this, we have millions of photos now that are sort of dated in this way. It it, it is the equivalent of like seeing an old black and white photo in your parents' photo album or you know, the sort of uh, 8mm developed film, you know, Kodak style that you would have to send away for. Like, you don't want to date things in that way. You want them to kind of live uh, almost eternally. With the questions out of the way... Now I have to ask myself, what do I want to sonically torture you with? And guess what? This week, once again, I'm picking the band Zed Star 7, their track Rumble, coming up right after this. The only thing left to say is pizza out. <laughs> 